In chapter 15, we are dead center in one of the most fascinating and intriguing, yet confusing and troubling narratives in the whole Bible. We're studying this man whose name is Samson. He's a hero, an icon, and a legend on the one hand, but he's a picture of ruin, self-destruction, and wasted potential on the other. Samson perhaps had more potential than most people that we read about in the Bible. But yet we see that that potential never is reached. And though he was saved, he ends up in the long list of those in Scripture we see whose lives were more shipwrecked than productive. There's so many lessons to learn as we look at this life. But I think that the greatest one, if you were to mark Samson's life in one phrase, it would be this, that godliness is greater than giftedness. He was a man incredibly talented, incredibly gifted, and yet those gifts were not consecrated rightly to the heart of God, and therefore they caused him to go wayward and shift uh, to the side. We look at people in the scripture like Joseph or Joshua or David or Noah, and what we see in them is that they had half the gifts and the abilities that Samson had, but yet we see that they accomplished way more than he did. And the reason for that is that the power to be productive in this world and to make our mark with the one shot that we get, it never comes from the strength of what's in our hands or the talents even that we've been given, but it's what God can do with us as our lives are surrendered and consecrated to him. And so we see Samson's life, a train wreck. But God's going to use that train wreck to wipe out a whole chunk of Philistine enemies that are standing too close to the tracks. And so in our previous studies, chapters 13 and 14, what we saw was that there's a fault in the engineering. The train itself is faulty. And tonight, as we look at chapters 15 and 16, Lord willing, we're going to watch the train derail and go off the tracks. And so we'll move through these two chapters, and then at the end we'll wrap it up with a few closing pictures. But we begin in chapter 15, uh, verse 1. It says, After a while in the time of wheat harvest. Now let me pause by way of recap. Where we left Samson, he was deceived or um, you know, subverted by his bride or bride-to-be. He fell in love with a Philistine woman. A woman he had no business being with. And at the wedding, he posed a riddle to some of the Philistine guests who then went to Samson's wife, convinced her to entice him to find out the answer, and Samson loses a bet. The bet, the wager, 30 changes of expensive clothes. Samson not having the money, he goes into Ashkelon, another Philistine city, 15 miles to the south. He kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothes, and brings them back as way of payment for that debt. He then, in anger, goes home. He doesn't consummate the marriage. He walks out on the seventh day, which would be the big day, the day that it would all come down and they would consummate the vows. He goes home. He says, no way, forget it. And so he heads back to the place where he was from, the tribe of Dan, And we're going to see that Samson's bride-to-be was given to someone else. But Samson didn't know that. And so it says that he returned in the time of wheat harvest. And you might want to mark that because that's going to be significant when we get to verse 4, that this is harvest season. 
And it says, but it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Now, as strange as this sounds, there actually was a custom in those days in that culture of marriage that was called the Sadika marriage. And what that was is that you didn't actually live with your bride. If you were traveling to an area, you could be legally married to a woman, and yet she would have an apartment in her father's house, and you would just visit her from time to time. So what Samson's doing here wouldn't be considered completely outside of their cultural bearings and understandings. But what we discover in verse 2, it says, Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And so we see that this woman was given to a supposed friend of Samson. And it shows us the morals or the moral bearings of the Philistines. That they had no allegiance to anyone. They just did whatever they want. Uh, And he was willing to give the younger sister to Samson and said, Samson thinks, no, inferior goods. Verse 3, it says, and Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. What we discover here is Samson's golden rule. Now, we operate by the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Samson's golden rule, we could call it a silver rule, was do a little bit worse to others than what they did to you. And we see him operating on that principle over and over again. And here he justifies it based upon what they do to him. And so he hatches a plan, and it is brilliant. Verse 4. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Now, it's amazing how silent the scriptures can be sometimes, isn't it? How in the world did Samson catch 300 foxes? How long did that take? And how bitter do you have to be to go through with the plan of what he's going to do, meaning, knowing that it means that he's going to have to trap and catch 300 foxes? But he does it. And it says that he took torches, he turned the foxes tail to tail, so he ties their tails together and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. And so he makes an utter destruction of their harvest, their sustenance in this season of harvest. Now, a fox tied to a fox with a torch tied to their tails moves very quickly, covers a lot of ground, and probably makes a lot of noise. And this probably would have made the top 10 hits for YouTube videos in whatever year this was if someone had had their smartphone handy to record the thing that Samson did. I know for sure I would have wanted to see it. And there's certainly something in us when we read this that we, 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 we crowd from the inside. We say, yeah, get him, Sammy, you know. There's something in us that always loves revenge, isn't it? It reminds me of that truck driver who stopped at a truck stop. He was tired. He'd been driving all night. And he came in for breakfast in the morning. And he sat down at the, 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 the deli counter there. And he ordered his 
you know, uh, sunrise, morning breakfast, and he comes in, and, and, and three Harleys pull up outside, and they, these hell's angels come in, uh, and they stand behind this truck driver who's just eating his breakfast. And the one Harley guy takes his breakfast, and he says, you weren't going to eat that, were you? And then he eats it, and he mocks the guy and makes fun of him. And the truck driver just sat there, knowing that he would not be able to overpower these uh, hell's angels. And, and so he quietly paid the bill to the woman, and then he you know, stepped to the outside, and he, and he walked out the door. He excused himself. And one of the hell's angels looked at the waitress as she was there and collected her, her, her fare and her tip. And the hell's angel said, he ain't much of a truck driver or much of a man is he and and she said well i don't know about that but he's not much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three harleys (laughs) and and when we hear that we 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 rejoice inside because there's just something so sweet about revenge and we see that samson doing that here notice in verse six it says then the philistine said who has done this And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now, if you remember from the last chapter, that was the reason why this woman went behind Samson's back and told the Philistines the answer to the riddle, because they threatened to burn her with fire. What we see here is that the very thing that she feared in going behind her husband back now comes upon her at the hand of those same Philistines. And so verse 7, it escalates even further. It says, So Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. And that's the problem with revenge. There's always an after that I will cease. And so he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And then he went down and he dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now, the Bible clearly says to you and I, the people of God, and Samson would certainly be included in that, that it is never our place as sons and daughters of the king to avenge ourselves. Jesus said, do not take revenge for yourselves, but rather leave place unto wrath. We're to commit all judgment or justice for what we endure at the hands of others into the hands of our Father, and we're not to do it ourselves. That's a very difficult thing. But it's spoken from God who knows all things, and it's spoken according to His perfect wisdom. Why does God tell us not to avenge ourselves or to seek revenge for the things that happen? A couple things to just think about. First of all, because we have imperfect knowledge. No matter how much we know, we don't know everything. We don't ever see the reason or the motives or the circumstance and setting behind all that takes place. And because we don't know those things and our knowledge is imperfect, we aren't able to administer things equally or justly in terms of revenge. God, on the other hand, does see all things. He sees all things clearly. He knows the hearts, the motives, the will, and the circumstances surrounding everything that happens. And so for judgment to be in his hand means that that judgment will be just and fair because he knows. Second of all, emotions never reflect facts. And just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean we really know what's going on. How many times have you, as I have, fallen prey or victim to acting on the way we feel about something, even though we find out later that our feelings deceived us? 
that the true situation wasn't according as our anger or our reaction merited. And so our emotions want us to react in revenge, but our emotions are lying to us. Number three, and that dovetails with the second, is that it doesn't really solve problems, it spreads them. What do we see happening here with Samson's revenge? It just escalates and it keeps going further and further. He loses his wife, then he burns their corn. Then they burn his wife and and her uh, father and their household. And then he slaughters an unknown number of Philistines. And the thing just just keeps going. It becomes a whirlwind uh, of destruction. And that's what happens when we avenge ourselves. It never stops with what we do. It always goes a little bit further. Number four, believe it or not, it doesn't actually satisfy. See, when we hear the story of the truck driver or see Samson with the foxes in the field, something in us says, yeah, and there's satisfaction in us when we hear it. But if you've ever done it, you know that it doesn't really satisfy. You don't feel like you you got things even or things are right or now you're satisfied. It doesn't work that way. And then number five is that God is fair and much better at getting revenge than we are. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. It's a great verse. If you look it up later, I'm sure you'll highlight it, underline, or maybe even memorize it. It says this. It says, Seeing, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Is that God doesn't let anyone get away with anything. He's fair and he administers justice according as he sees fit and according to what is right. And so when we feel as though we've been wronged, and sometimes we're wronged, but we commit that judgment to God, he's going to handle it in a much more effective way than we can, and he's able to work things out on many fronts. And so we see this revenge turning into a big fiasco, uh, resulting in the death of many Philistines, which in one sense God worked to the good, but for Samson, it's going to cause more problems. Look at verse 9. It says, Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. So now the Philistines, because of what Samson did, they gather their troops, they get organized, and they invade a region of Judah. So now they're going to attack the Israelites because of what Samson did. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. So they want blood. Then 3,000 men of Judah, so now these are Samson's own countrymen, his flesh, went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you've done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. There's his silver rule of life. (laughs) But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. Notice the difference between the response of the Israelites to a judge now versus any other time in the book of Judges. Any other time God raised up a judge to defeat the enemies of Israel, the people rallied behind that judge. But here we see that the people of God are rebelling against the judge and actually submitting to the oppression of the Philistines that's upon them. Well, Notice what Samson uh, says. 
Uh, he says, you know, swear that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, verse 13, saying, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And so he agrees to surrender peacefully. He allows them to tie him, bind him, secure him, and he goes with them. What do we see here in, in this section? We see the people of God saying to a servant of God these words, Please, Samson, don't disrupt the status quo. This is custom for us now. We've been paying taxes. We've been subservient to the Philistines, the sworn enemies of God, for the past 40 years. This is what we do. We pay them taxes. They leave us alone. And it's been working real good, Samson. And now you're coming in, you're going down there, you're mixing it up with their women, you're screwing around, gambling with their men, you're causing trouble for us, and now they're invading our territories, and you're upsetting the status quo, and we like it that way. And so they get on Samson's back, because Samson is disturbing the situation that they have. Now here's the problem with that, is that these are God's people, and they're made to be free, And God wants them to be free. He doesn't want them to be subservient to the Philistines. And so God is behind all of this. Now, by way of application, I'll say this. I think one of the things that makes the United States of America in 2013 much like the Israelites during the period of the judges is that we have been trained to accept a substandard status quo as it relates to our relationship with God and our status as a Christian nation or as Christians in this nation before him. And that's a real problem. What we've seen happen here over the last 50 years in our country is the removal of God from every area of our society, a little at a time, but completely and in every arena. He's been removed from our laws from our quotes and inscriptions that have been on courthouses and you know, iconic buildings in our country for, 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 for centuries, our monuments. He's been removed from our history, our education, our morals, and even to the point where he's been removed from private conversation. That it's no longer acceptable to talk about God or to say the name Jesus in a public forum or even one-on-one with people. It's become culturally unacceptable, politically incorrect, to talk about Jesus, God, church, prayer, or the Bible. And the reason for that is because we have accepted the status quo. We've said, well, whatever the culture says, whatever the mainstream accepts, we'll quietly go along with it because we don't want to make waves for ourselves or bring persecution upon ourselves. And so what we've done is that we've come to a point where we've now accepted the status quo of what it means to be a Christian in the United States of America. The problem when a people, especially the people of God, accept the status quo and become trained to accept the status quo is this, is that as the status quo continues to change, not in our favor, we quietly go along with it and accept the standards as they get lower and lower lower concerning the light that we're allowed to shine out in a world for our Lord. And that's a dangerous thing. And we see it happening here with the children of Israel. It's certainly true within our lives. Hey, Samson, we're content to pay taxes to the Philistines even though it's not God's will. Are we content to let them quiet our Christian voice and our Christian beliefs and our Christian Savior? 
Are we? Perhaps we are. Well, what happens? Verse 14. Samson goes along and says, And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. So they rejoice. Hey, our enemy, here he comes. He's tied up. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. So this is supernatural. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. So the fetters that were holding the ropes together, and it says that he found a fresh jawbone, and that's important because an old jawbone would be brittle, but it's also a violation. He's not supposed to be dealing with dead things. But he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and he killed a thousand men with it. Now that's amazing. If you can think about one man for a moment, who with the jawbone of a donkey kills a thousand men who are all coming at him at once. It's a work of the Spirit of God. It's supernatural. And it says, Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called that place uh, Ramath Lehi, which means jawbone heights. So he gives it a new name based upon the heaps of bodies that are piled there that he produced uh, with that jawbone. And so Samson does this and now we have a rare prayer. Verse 18, watch this. It says, then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord. This is the first time, and one of only two times in all of Samson's recorded life, that we see him calling out to the Lord. And it isn't a prayer of thanksgiving. It's not a prayer of intercession. It's not a prayer of repentance. It's not a thousand prayers that it should be for this man who's wandered so far from God. But rather, it's a complaint about a carnal situation. He cried out to the Lord and he said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Real spiritual man, right? I mean, you know, we wouldn't even talk to our parents this way. I mean, some of us maybe. But here's a man of God, anointed by the Spirit of God, called by God to deliver the people of God. And the only thing that he can say to God is that he's thirsty and that it's God's responsibilities to supply him with water in this thing. Now, I love this, because here's our Father, verse 19. God answers. It says, So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, he called its name en Hekore, which is in uh, Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And so Samson does this, he earns the respect and favor of the people, and then he rules the people for a time of 20 years. Now as we come into chapter 16, now we're going to see Samson's past, Samson's flesh, Samson's unchecked lust catch up with him, derail him, and destroy him. Notice with me, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now Samson went to Gaza. He has no business being in Gaza. Gaza is further into Philistine territory, even than Timnah, where he went and met the wife back in chapter 14. He's deeper into this darkened territory that he was even in his darkest day previously. And here's what he does there. It says that he saw a harlot there, and he went in to her. 
What we see Samson doing here is something extremely stupid. He's going into a place he has no business being and doing something that he has no business doing. Now let me pause to say this here at this point. I want to share two things, two of a thousand, two things that I love about the Bible. First of all, I love the honesty of the Old Testament. Is that God doesn't hide from us the things that people, even his people, did. Because those things serve as a warning for us. And we learn from them and we see in them the, 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 the darkness that can be and is often in us as well. And so I appreciate that God lays those things out. But the other thing that I really love about the Bible is the grace that's in the New Testament. Most people don't know this, but you know it'll be a fun exercise for you to prove it out after you hear me say it. Is that throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the sins of God's people. He lays them out for us and lets us see what happened with them. But there's never one instance ever, not one, in the New Testament where the sin of an Old Testament character is mentioned. Old Testament characters are mentioned often, but always in the righteous form. Their sin is never mentioned once. And the reason for that is because the grace and the blood washes away all sin. It cleanses all sin, puts it away. The consequences for our sin... The reward that we lose or reap negatively because of our sin, those things stand. But our sin is put away. It's covered completely by Christ. But God lets us see what happens in these lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, says that God did that so that we could be warned. That these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So that we might take heed to ourselves in this time. Now what God saw in Samson is recorded here in this text. See, for 20 years he's been judging Israel. He has a reputation there. They must know about his past. What happened when he was young. The woman that he took in Timnah. The conflict that resulted because of it. The thousand Philistines that were slain by the jawbone of a donkey. But since then, Samson's cleaned up his act. 20 years goes by. He's held in high esteem by the people of Israel. He's Samson. He's mighty. He's strong. He's their deliverer. He's a Nazarite from the womb. His long hair, a constant testament to the people of his consecration to God. And they no doubt respected him highly, and he knew that. What we discover as we move on in the book of Judges is that the moral compass or temperature in Israel was really bad. Samson could have gotten a prostitute anywhere in Israel that he wanted. We're going to see in the coming chapters that those idolatrous and wicked practices were rampant among the people of God in Israel at this time. He could have gone and done it in Israel. Why does he go to Gaza? Well, we know he has a thing for Philistine women. That's a given. We saw that throughout. But furthermore, I believe partially it's because he doesn't want the people that respect him so greatly to know that he's still struggling with this sin. And so he goes to a place where no one will see him, no one will be able to report back, and he'll be able to cover any story that would come. He goes into a harlot, a prostitute, this Nazarite, this man of God, into a place where he has no business being. But notice what happens. It says in verse 2, it says that when the Gazites were told... Samson has come here. 
They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city. Now, before you think that that's just like a little gate that someone has in the front of their house that is decorated or, you know, a white picket fence or something. No, the gate of the city was like the main penetration or or place of defense. The, 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 The pillars would be of iron. The gate would be high. It would be impenetrable. It would be heavy. We already know of the Philistines from past testimony, and what we'll learn in the future is that they were master metal workers. They brought the Middle East into the Iron Age. They brought that technology with them. And so they were the ones that had weapons. They were the ones that were good at this. And here the gates of the city are lifted by Samson. It says that he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, here's the amazing thing about this picture. Here's Samson. He goes to Gaza. He goes to see this, uh, you know, Philistine woman that he has no business being with, this prostitute. And then he exposes himself. The Bible says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are capable of. Of handling. In other words, God will never let Satan throw something at you that's a temptation that's too great for you to handle. However, it is possible for you to tempt yourself beyond what you're able to handle. Samson had no business being in a place where he would put in front of his eyes and make available to himself the thing that he would struggle with. And he does that. He goes into Gaza, he makes himself vulnerable, he tempts himself. He doesn't have anything in place to protect him from it, and he goes in to this woman. I think of Joseph at this point, Old Testament Joseph, son of Jacob. Here's a guy, 17 years old. He's been placed in Egypt unjustly. His brother sold him there as a slave. He's given favor by God, and he becomes the most prominent servant in the wealthy man Potiphar's house. The Bible tells us that Potiphar didn't even pay attention to anything he had. He trusted everything to Joseph. And here comes this woman, Potiphar's wife. Wealthy people, even to this day, have attractive wives. It's just the way it works. And she took a liking to Joseph, and she said, Joseph, come and lie with me. And if Joseph, a man of whom there's no recorded shortcoming or sinful behavior ever in his life recorded in the Bible, if he had to set up safeguards for himself so that he wouldn't be tempted or taken with her temptress ways. If he had to, of whom there's no recorded sin, then how much more did Samson, who had a struggle in this area, need to keep himself from being in a place where he would be tempted? What's the point? Here's the point. That though God will not allow you to be tempted by anything outward, we can be tempted, we can tempt ourselves to a point where we can't handle that our own temptation. And if we don't set up certain things, safeguards in our lives, or build some accountability into what we do or where we go or what what we're about, then we're going to fall if those things are ever set before our eyes the right way. Because the Bible says that we're flesh and that the flesh is weak. And so Samson does it here. Now Samson gets exposed. Hey, let me ask you a question. Who's the only one that can lift up the gates of the city 
and walk them up a hill that faces Hebron. Samson. He gets so carried away in in this moment of whatever that he does something that's going to expose what he could do. Samson perhaps thought no one's ever going to know what happened, but God says, I'm just going to put it in the Bible. (laughs) Be sure and know that your sin is going to find you out. You know what this is like to me? This would be like this. It would be like if a preacher anywhere in the world goes and does something like Samson does. He goes to a brothel. And he goes to visit a prostitute in a foreign city in a moment of weakness. But then he goes to that brothel, and the Spirit of God falls upon it, and everybody in it gets saved. The people that run it, the people that work there, they all get saved. And they say, well, how did you get saved? Exposed. Now what do you do? Uh, That's what that's like. You know, Samson, he goes down there, he tries to keep it quiet, but but he, he does this thing with the gates. Now it's known. Everybody knows what happens. He puts the gates up, and now look at verse 4. It says, Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, the valley of Sorek was the valley that divided the territory of Dan, where Samson lived, where he was from, and the territory of the Philistines. So what do we see here? We see he he does it again, and now where is he hanging out? He's hanging out right at the border. He doesn't go into Gaza this time, or Ashkelon, or any of those other Philistine cities, territories. He hangs out right near the border. I don't think the Holy Spirit could have gone any further to show us what kind of a man this man was. There's people like that. They fall. They fall again. God restores them. He gets them out of a situation. They learn the lesson for a while, but where do they hang out? Right on the border. They don't go into that sinful thing, that sinful area, but they hang out right next to the edge of it. And that's what he does. And sure enough, he falls in again. Listen, Satan's resources are much greater than you and I will ever know. And he knows how to put the right thing in the right place so that if we're in the wrong place, we're destined to fall into that thing that he's designing to take us out. Look at this, verse 5. It says, And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him. Sound familiar? And find out where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him and we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Entice him. Find out where his strength is so that we can overpower him. So that we may bind him and bring him into bondage and then that we might afflict him. And there's a price tag. We'll pay you a handsome sum if you're able to do it and deliver it into our hands. What's going on here? I confess to you openly tonight that I don't understand fully what man is, what we are, what a human being is. But this I know. I know that God created the world for us. That he created angels with the intent, at least in part, to serve us and minister on our behalf. That God was willing to let his son, perfect light, come into this world and become darkness and pay the penalty, the price, for every sin that was ever committed through a brutal death upon a cross. God let that happen for us. I know that Jesus said that one soul is worth more than all of the combined wealth and value of the entire world. He said that if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, what does it profit you? That means one soul is worth more than the combined wealth of everything on the planet. 
I know that the Bible says that when angels look at us, it says that they marvel. And that blows my mind. Because I would think that angels could see a couple of other things that would blow their minds a little bit more than me. Like creation. You know, they saw God do all that, but it says that they look at us and they marvel. The Bible tells us that Satan hates us so much that he exists for the sole purpose of corrupting and destroying us. What that tells me is this, that if you and I are the, are the product or the, the spoils of a divine battle that spans ages, I think we might be more than we understand. I'm not sure if we really grasp what we fully are, but here's the point and why I bring that up at this point when we see these Philistine enemies telling Delilah to entice this man. Is that there is a plot in the boardroom of our enemy to subvert and destroy and corrupt every single one of us. And he wants to do to us the same exact thing the Philistines want to do to Samson. He wants to find the source of our strength so that he can overpower us so that he can bind us, so that he can afflict us. And there's a price tag on it. And that's true for every single one of us that's here right now. The book of Job tells us that Satan, from time to time, has to give account to God for the things that he's doing. When you read Job 1 and 2, you discover that there was a conversation between the Father in heaven and Satan, the prince of darkness, and Job was the topic of that conversation. And God said something to Satan, I hope he never says about me. He says, have you considered my servant Job? That he loves righteousness, that he hates evil, that he does what's right. And Satan responded and he said, does Job serve God for nothing? He's a mercenary. He serves you and loves you because you've blessed him and you've protected him. But if you lift the barrier of protection and you let me at him, I could get him to curse you to your face. And God says something I hope he never says about us. He says, go ahead, get him. He set restrictions. He said, you can go this far and no further. And Satan did exactly as God said he could. And Job was afflicted. But Job kept his integrity and he did not curse God to his face. So Satan came back and he was reporting. And God said, have you considered my servant Job that he loves righteousness, that he hates evil, that he does what's right? And Satan says, does, God, does Job serve God for nothing? Flesh for flesh. All that a man has will he give in exchange for his flesh. Let me touch his body and he'll curse you to his face, to your face. And God says, have at it, but you can't kill him. He sets restrictions again. And Satan goes down. He afflicts Job. Job is covered with boils. He's sitting covered in sackcloth, scratching his sores with broken pieces of clay, wondering what in the world is going on in his life. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why is all this going down? But it says that Job kept his integrity. He never cursed God to his faith. What's the point? Why do I share that? Here's why. Because Satan, though he cannot touch a child of God, and the Bible is clear that he cannot touch a child of God, he's a great observer. What he does is he looks at you and me and he watches what we do. He watches what we're into. He watches what catches our eye. He looks for our weaknesses. And what he's doing is he's forming a strategy. He's looking for a way that he can set us up so that even though he has restrictions and he can't get at us, we can walk in a way that we would destroy ourselves. And so he makes a plan. And he watches. And he waits. And he uses his resources and he sets us up. And if there is something, a weakness that we do not keep continually in check before God, and there's not a continual taking up the cross and denying ourselves of those things that we would naturally go after, 
It's only a matter of time before Satan finds the right people in the right place and he's able to draw up a plan and take us out completely. We see in the book of Acts the same principle with Paul in his ministry in Ephesus. There were seven sons of Sceva. They were Jewish men. They were not saved, but they saw Paul's ministry and they sought to mimic his exorcism. And so they went to a man who was demon-possessed, these seven Jews, and they said, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demons spoke back to these seven sons of Sceva. And you know what they said? They said, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And it says that the demons jumped on the men, and they ran away naked and beat. Great scene. Another YouTube top ten, you know, from the Bible reenactment scenes. But here's the point. Paul's name was known in hell. Satan and his minions knew exactly who Paul was. And here's what I suggest to you is that Satan knows who you are. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he knows who you are. And there are constantly plans in the strategy, strategic mind that he has to try to take you out. And we see it illustrated so clearly here with these Philistines coming to Delilah. Find out where his strength is so that we might bind him, so that we might afflict him. And that's what Satan wants for you. And there's a price on your head. Be sure of it. So what happens? We enter into the wear down phase for Samson, verse 6. It says, So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, That's called clarity and deception. (laughs) Samson, tell me how to beat you, you know. He says, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried. Green vines that would be used for bow and arrows. You know, high, high strength test in those vines. He says, if they bind me with those, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. What we find here is that she loves silver more than she loves Samson. It says, now the men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, notice what's going on here is that Samson is playing with the call of God. God has a call upon his life and he's playing with it. It's a toy to him. It's a game. We also see here, by way of observation, that Samson probably did not look like Mr. Olympia. See, if Samson was this jacked guy with bulging biceps and shoulders and quads, you know, they wouldn't have to ask the question, what's the secret of his strength? They would know where his strength comes from. But they don't know where it comes from. He probably was very average in his appearance. The strength that he had isn't from human means, it's from superhuman means, it's from God. So the secret of that strength here is not known. So, attempt number two, verse 10. It says, then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what, with what you may be bound. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait staying in the room. So these guys, they're in the room waiting while she's putting these, these ropes upon him, binding him. It says, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. 
And Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of a loom. Do you notice that he's getting closer? He's wearing down. He hasn't told her yet that his strength lies in his consecration, but he's getting dangerously close. He's in the arena. Weave the seven locks of my head into a weaver's loom, and I'll become weak. So, verse 14, you'd think that he'd catch on. I don't think he was the sharpest knife in the drawer. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out of the batten and the web from the loom. Now, I love that picture. Because here's this guy. I mean, you ever seen a loom? Go to the Dutchess County Fair, you know, the sheep area. They have the loom, the big thing. It's big. You know, the lady's there. She's doing the thing with her feet and working, the, you know, whatever, all the parts. And here's Samson. His head's weaved into it. You can, now he's got this big loom, and he goes, get out, you know, and the, the whole thing. Do you think maybe at this point he would wake up and realize what's happening here? But he doesn't. Verse 15. So then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Now mark that verse because it's a key verse in this thing. She's right. Samson has a divided heart. Half of his heart is still yet with the Lord, and only half of his heart is with her. What did Jesus say? He said that no man can serve two masters, because he will either love the one and hate the other, or he will hate the one and love the other. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon, one of the demons, you know, the, the, the money God in those days, but basically you can't serve God and Satan. We're called to have a united heart in our service to the Lord. Psalm chapter 86, verses 11 through 13, David prayed this. He said, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Is that we're not to have a divided heart. Because when we have a divided heart, half of our heart with the Lord and half of our heart in the world or somewhere else, ultimately, we're not going to be effective in either one of those places. If God doesn't have our heart, he's not going to do with our lives and through our lives what he wants to. And we're not going to make a mark on this world as long as our heart is mixed, divided in that way. Your heart is not with me. You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. Verse 16, And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death, that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. The strength, Delilah, the secret, the source, it's not in the hair. I'm consecrated to God. I belong to God. His spirit is upon my life. There's a calling. There's a plan. The source of my strength lies in that. The hair an outward symbol of that inward consecration, but take away my hair. Take away the distinction. Remove that consecration from my life, and I will become just like everyone else. And that's so true, isn't it? What makes us different from the rest of the world? We certainly look very much the same. We dress the same, and we we operate in a modern culture, but we're different. There's a strength that lies in us. It's not in our hair. It's in our separation, our consecration. Now Delilah knows. She intuitively knows, hey, this is it. Look at verse 18. It says, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, 
She sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees. And that's what Satan will do to you. He will make you think that he's your friend, that he's not out to harm you, that what you're doing is innocent enough, and he will lull you to sleep on his knees. And then she called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. Saddest verse in the Bible. So he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The thing that makes you what you were made to be is the Lord in you. Apart from that, all you are is parts upon a shelf. Look what Samson was able to do under the power of God. He killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He was bound with bovines and he snapped them like flax that's touched with fire. He was bound with ropes. I looked up the, the strength of a rope. If you have a rope that's one inch thick... The force, and this is by modern standards, but you can equivocate it however you want. 12,825 pounds to break a rope that's one inch thick. He had one on both arms, and yet it says that he broke them like yarn when fire touches the yarn. He snaps it, 12,000 pounds each arm. The strongest man in the world, it looks like the picture must have come up already. A guy named Paul Anderson holds the world record for the most weight ever lifted. 6,270 pounds. He weighed 360 pounds. So the most that natural man can do apart from God, 6,000 pounds. But look what Samson's able to do under the power of God. He's able to do great and mighty things. Absent from the power of God, Samson becomes like everyone else, unable to do even that which is least. I've used the illustration before of a pneumatic tool. We've all had tires changed, flat tires repaired. You go to the garage. What do you hear at a tire repair place? You hear, you know, they use the the impact gun to take the lug nuts off of the, you know, thing. The reason why that works so effectively and so powerfully is because it's connected via hose to a source of highly compressed air. But separate that gun, that tool from that air source and it becomes a useless piece of iron or metal. You try with the strength of your air to spin that chuck and loosen one lug nut and you'll find out what you're capable of. Here's the point. The point is this. Is that you and I are pneumatic tools. Spirit driven. And when we are empowered by God, filled with God, that's when we become empowered to be and to do what God made us to be and to do. Apart from Him, we can do absolutely nothing. And what we see pictured here in Samson He's separated from the source and he becomes like everyone else. Listen, what were you created to be? Were you created to be wise? Is that the gift that God gave you? Well, what is that wisdom with God and what is that wisdom without? Were you created to create your creative powers and agencies? What are they with God and what are they without? Were you created to lead? What does leadership look like when you're empowered by the Spirit of God versus when you're doing it in human ingenuity? Were you created to have strength, perhaps like Samson? We see right here what it looks like when it's powered by God. Were you created to have influence? What were you created to be? Mom? What does it look like to be a mom who's filled with and empowered by the Spirit? 
operating in the arena of the supernatural as God intended. See, apart from him, we become a pile of spare parts. But with him, we can do all things. It says that the spirit departed from Samson. Notice how he ends. As we draw closer to a close, verse 21, it says, Then the Philistines took him, and they put out his eyes. Samson was blind a long time before this. He was blind in verse 1 when he went to Gaza and went into a harlot that was there. He was blind a little bit further on in the narrative when he went to Delilah and she asked him what was the secret of his strength. And he didn't see that she was out to get him. He was blind throughout all of those tests as she would bind him. He was blind to the fact that there were people in the room lying wait for him. He was blind to his demise, his spiritual condition. And this blindness that took place after the Philistines got him was simply a reflection of a spiritual condition that was already at work within his life. He was blind for a long time before he was ever blinded physically. It says, they put out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. There's a picture of what that would look like coming up on the screen of the olive press and what Samson uh, would, would be doing in that setting, that situation there. Just hoping that that grinding thing, so I don't have to describe what a grinding thing is. Okay, grinding thing. No, look at, there, there it is. No, yes, there it is. Do you see, there's Samson. He's right there. He's grinding. That's what happened to him. They would put the olives in the donut-like thing. He would walk in circles for the rest of his life, grinding uh, there. Um, and that became his destiny because of it. You read the rest of the narrative. We'll read through this quickly. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has delivered into our hands Samson our enemy. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, notice lowercase g, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. Hey, sadder even yet than the demise and fall of Samson is what happens in heaven because of it. See, when David sinned with Bathsheba, It wasn't just the sin of David and the reproach that he brought upon himself and upon his family. But what did Nathan the prophet say to David? He said, because you have done this, you have given great occasion for the enemies of our God to blaspheme. See, when a believer falls in any area of sin, that's what it does. Beyond any of the consequences of our sin, it gives the adversary an ability to go before God and say, see God, I told you. If I just put this one thing in front of him, he would fall. And he did. And that's what happens here. They blaspheme the name of God. So it happened when their hearts were married that they said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. And then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord, the second of two prayers in Samson's life, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Great heart, right? And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. And he braced himself against them, one on his right 
and the other on his left. And now, I said the one of the scariest verses in the Bible back in verse uh, 20 when it says the Lord departed. Now one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And I'll tell you why in a second. Verse 30. And then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and on all the people who were in it, so that the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. I really believe this is one of the most amazing verses, maybe in the whole Bible. Maybe not in the whole Bible. We'll give it the book of Judges and maybe the Old Testament. And here's why. Because God answered his prayer. Because Samson had squandered so uselessly all of the resources that God had given him for his whole life. And now at this one point now where he has a chance to one more time, and only in the name of revenge, according to his prayer, God gives him the thing that he so freely squandered before. God answered. It's a testament to the grace of God. Why would God do that thing? The third, or the, the, another reason why this is so amazing is because God took him home. I mean, if you think about it, in, in a lot of ways, that's a gift. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that Samson was saved. He's in the hall of faith. He becomes a hero of the Bible. He's enshrined forever in God's kingdom. And yet here, God allows him to come home at this instant. I know a lot of people that pray often, God, take me. And God doesn't answer that prayer. <laughs> you know, and, and, and really, if you think about it, Samson deserved to hang around a little bit longer. You know, when you think about the difference. Yeah, he'd get to heaven eventually, but Samson reap it for a while, but he doesn't. We see also that God was gracious and that God let him make an impact even at the last moment of his life, the day of his death. And I think that speaks to us that it's never too late for God to use our lives. You could squander every day of your life, but if you turn your heart and your intentions and your deeds to God, even on the last day, God will accept you and God will use you. God does it here for Samson. And uh, we see this happen. It says, And his brothers and all of his father's household came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtual in the tomb of his father Manoah. And he judged Israel 20 years. And so we come to the end of Samson's life, the end of the chapter. And as we close and the worship team can come, I give you three sentences to consider as we ponder this great life that was so greatly squandered. Number one is this. For you and I, by way of application, beware of a compartmentalized faith. That means that on one part or one area of your life, you're holy, you're consecrated, you're dedicated to God. Everything is the way it should be. But yet there's another part of your life that's so godless, you wouldn't even be recognized as a Christian if someone saw you living there. Beware of that. Because when our hearts are divided in that way, it becomes impossible for us to make an impact for God and to stay productive and fruitful in the things that he has. Number two is this, that there is a blackboard in the boardroom of Satan's domain that has your name on it somewhere. It's true, he can't touch you, he can't possess you, you're sealed, you're protected by God. But he watches, and he schemes, and he plans. And if he can, he'll lay the perfect snare and take each one of us out if afforded the opportunity. And number three, never forget that our power to live comes from the working of God's Spirit within us and nothing else. Apart from Him, we are spare parts. I wonder if you were to consider yourself as a tool in God's hand what you are right now. 
I think some of us, we would have to be honest, we would say that we're tools on a shelf. I'm not connected to the air supply at all. I, I don't have the presence or power of God working in me, making me what I'm supposed to be. Not even a little bit. I'm on the shelf. Some of us, I think, operate like cordless tools. We have batteries. We charge them up in the morning in God's presence. And then we move through our day and we watch that light and glory and power just fade ever so much until we get to the end of the day and we say, ah, there's nothing left. Are you a battery-operated tool? Your, your Christianity consists of just your morning and perhaps your evening devotions, but there isn't a constant fire, a constant pull. Some of us may be attached to the hose, where God is our all, our strength, and our life. Where we say, like David, God is a refuge and a strength, an ever-present help in trouble. He's with me right now. That's what he desires to be and to do in our lives. So where are we at? Apart from him, we can do nothing. The conclusion of Samson's life is this. It's not about being gifted. It's about being godly. God uses the weak things, the base things, to confound the things that are mighty. And if he can find a heart that's separated to him, he doesn't need much. Jesus would so much rather use the loaves and fish, a little boy with lunchables and a Capri Sun, to feed a multitude of 5,000 people than to send his disciples with all of the accounts of the kingdom and to wipe out a grocery store and organize a feast to feed them. He always wants to use the weak things. I'm a weak thing. You're a weak thing. God can use weak things. He's not looking for talent. He's looking for our hearts. Father, we thank you so much for this testimony. As we look at this man who had so much and yet fell so hard, Lord, may it ever be that admonition to us. And may our lives, Lord, not fall by the wayside. But in this one chance that we get to make an impact on earth for heaven, Lord, I pray that every one of us would bear the most possible fruit. So we pray tonight, Lord, that you would reconsecrate our hearts. That you would search out every area, every closet, every cavity. That you would root out those things in us, Lord, that 20 years from now might be our fall. But that right now they'd be laid at the foot of the cross. That the blood of Jesus would cleanse and remove them from us. And that everything in us would be replaced and filled with love from and for you. So take us, Lord. Use us for your glory. And may we make a difference in our world. So bless what we've heard. Divide it in our hearts. And make it real to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.